0: Welcome to TYT interviews, we got a great interview for you guys today. It is old friend Dylan Ratigan, but doing something very different and new, running for Congress, New York's 21st District. Mr. Radigan, perhaps soon Congressman Radigan. great to have you on the program. Nice to be here, how are you? I'm great, I'm great, brother. So Dylan, of course, hosted his own show on MSNBC, we were on together. In fact, Dylan gave me my first break on MSNBC. Uh, when when he let me co-host for him, uh, or fill in host for him, uh, he also-
1: I, had, I also taught people how to say your name. Well, yeah, so. which was another huge break. That was big,
0: big. <laughs> uh, Dylan has hosted the Young Turks. Dylan was a TYT contributor until he uh, announced that he's running for uh, the seat, he was, if you don't know though, this is really interesting, he's also started Fast Money and Closing Bell uh, for CNBC. A lot of people have forgotten that, but that's, those are two huge shows for CNBC that Dylan started. And he was the global managing editor for corporate finance at Bloomberg, um, and, and one of the most interesting cats I know, um, <laughs> so- No mention, of
1: what about the veteran farming? What about oh, the veterans, Jack? Yeah, let alone- the past five years, man? Let alone Helical. Uh,
0: and, and, uh, hot, and, and we've talked about that on air before as well, uh, a, a business that he started with uh, veterans, uh, successful business, let alone uh, the book Greedy Bastards, which was a New York Times uh, bestseller uh, talking about wealth extraction, one of his um, uh, top uh, topics of focus. That he was known on on for at MSNBC and a little bit at CNBC as well. So, Dylan, look, you're you're a guy who's done all these amazing different things as I just outlined. Why run for Congress? Honestly,
1: the risks to our country are so high right now, Jenk. and the belief that you can participate by simply saying things or or ignoring it or disengaging from it. Uh, which are, you know, certainly I've been disgusted over the years, but the fact of the matter is that the stakes are too high for this country not to engage at the highest levels of the debate immediately in order to restore some level of seriousness and stability to the federal government of the richest and most powerful country in the world. So, um, you know, you've got this great expertise in in finance,
0: and and you've actually taught me a lot about that. Um, and so, how would you apply
1: that if you were a congressman? At the end of the day, the root of the issues that plague the district that I am running for, my home district, New York 21, where I grew up, I was a paperboy, I will give you my, that whole. Rigamarole, right? It's a place that I know. My family came here in the 1700s. I moved back here in 2012. It's a district that has twice the national average in unemployment, jank. It's a district that has the opioid epidemic rising, guns, you pick it, okay? All of those issues are a direct result of financial policy and tax policy that is designed to remove resources, money, assets from districts like New York 21 and consolidate them in an increasingly small group of hands that tend to exist in a virtual universe that is monitored on computers in skyscrapers in cities around the world. As a congressman for a district like New York 21, which has twice the national average unemployment, which has a dependency on Medicare, Medicaid, all these fundamental assets. I'm obviously gonna use my financial expertise to drive debate on both banking and tax policy to drive investment in the rural districts of America that are not absent talented labor. They're not out absent ambition. They're absent the resources to support the opportunities for the folks that are here so that kids like myself who grew up in districts like this don't have to leave to this for the cities' jank in search of opportunity.
0: Yep, and so, of course, what a lot of people are focusing on is that this is a classically Republican district. It has been for a long time. Briefly under Obama, it went to Democratic hands, and Obama did win the district 52-46 in 2012. But Trump won it 54-40 in 2016, so that's a 14-point lead there for Trump. Now he's had big leads in districts where the Democrats have won easily now in these special elections that we've seen so obviously things can change but at least Stefanik, who is the current congresswoman there Stefani. Stefanik. Stefanic sorry um, is has got a, a war chest of 1.2 million dollars so uh
1: how do you how do you beat her in a Republican district like that well again there's a misperception of a quote-unquote Republican district uh, this is a district that is is, is really a a um, more anti-establishment district. This is a district that was a Bernie Trump district, and and they weren't given the opportunity to vote for Bernie. So given the choice between the ultimate establishment candidate and Donald Trump, they chose Donald Trump. That's not a preference for Donald Trump, that's an outright rejection of the establishment. There is no one who has done more, certainly publicly, uh, around the ideas and and recognition of the issues with the establishment than I have. Uh, and my ability to connect not only with the Democrats in this district, uh, but with the Independents and the Republicans transcends, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, party identities. This is not a partisan issue. You're dealing with a career politician who is an incumbent who has a job based on a gerrymandered district that she was placed into uh, out of a career that was born in college in Washington D.C. I couldn't ask for a more appealing opponent in a general election than a career politician who has never done anything in their lives other than take what was given to them by the establishment in a gerrymandered district. This is something that the independents, Republicans, and Democrats all resent because they they know for a fact that they're being manipulated for their votes in order to empower the consolidation of resources and, and influence inside of the establishment, in this case of the Republican Party. And I believe, I'm confident that Somebody who is truly from the district, who was born and raised in this district, which is not something that the incumbent could obviously say, uh, is something that will be extremely appealing not only in the the Democratic Party, but to independents and Republicans. And the reception that I've received uh, so far from independents and Republicans to to my candidacy, because they know how strong my values and integrity have been in fighting and identifying the corruption and rigging of our political systems is extremely appealing to uh, a broad section of the electorate, not just the Democratic Party. So Dylan, I I know you grew up middle
0: class and rose up out of nowhere. I I, I know the story of how you came up and wound up at Bloomberg, etc. But you know when people look at it from the outside, they say, "Well, now this guy had three different TV shows, New York Times best selling book, etc." And I think the natural question they might ask is, "Why are you against the establishment? You easily could have been a part of the establishment. You were right there. You were in it for a long time." So why the anger or the frustration or the
1: antipathy towards the establishment? I guess when you look at where I came from, and you again, it's not just the family, You know, raised by a single mother who worked at Essex County Mental Health up here in New York 21 for much of her career. And as somebody who believed in the possibility of the American dream based on the merit of the accumulation of your efforts. Uh, so to realize uh, that the that the opportunity for people to actually do that is a lie or is at least uh, being a uh, uh- the barriers to to pursuing that path are being cultivated every day by the government and the financial system was deeply offensive to me. I, I, I guess I learned a, a great sense of justice and equality uh, growing up in this part of the world, and I really was a believer uh, in the American way, if, in the in the you know truth, justice, in the American way in the most classical sense. Remember, I was eight years old, Jenk, when we beat the Russians in Lake Placid. I mean, that's one of the most inspiring moments uh, in this country's history, and certainly in my own childhood and My sense of justice ultimately supersedes my desire to maintain uh, social status and lifestyle. It's why I resigned from CNBC in the face of the bank bailouts. It's why I left MSNBC in the face of the political culture that's not serious about solving America's problems. Uh, It's why I decided that I would invest much of my savings after I left MSNBC and trying to create a business that creates solar powered hydroponic farms for veterans. Uh, There's something inside of me that is more strongly bonded to the idea of justice and decency, basically human equality. Uh, more so than the indulgence uh, 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 of lifestyle and, and, and social position. So I, I want to give out your website
0: real quick before we go on. But you mentioned something there that that's really interesting. First, what what's the website that people can go to? Oh, dylanradigan.com. ncom Okay, so everybody check out dylanradigan.com to find out more about Dylan. Find out about the issues as well. So, but you mentioned right there uh, that you left CNBC. Uh, I think that's a really interesting story. Do you wanna share with people
1: why you left CNBC at the time that you did? Well, again, up until the financial crisis, I was really a firm believer in the idea that we lived in a meritocracy, uh, where good ideas attracted money and resources, and money and resources went to those ideas to solve problems for people. And it wasn't a perfect system by any stretch, but that basically was the system that we had. When the bank bailouts happened with no strings attached, which became literally the largest theft and cover up in American history, it became obvious that we did not live in a meritocracy, that we did not have a system that was based in investing uh, money and resources into our society. But rather, we had a small group of people who were in control of a financial system that maybe it needed to be bailed out based on what had occurred. But to bail it out with no strings attached was such an egregious breach of the basic trust between the people and the government uh, that I felt no choice but to point that out, uh, which I did uh, ad nauseum every night on Fast Money up until the point where I resigned. I mean. I don't know how else to say it to you. At the end of the day, I'm a believer in meritocracy and opportunity and equality in this country, at least equal opportunity in this country. And it was such an obvious breach of that specific principle, which is a foundational American principle, that it felt wrong for me to remain in that job sitting in Times Square talking about money, pretending that what just happened wasn't the largest theft and cover up in the history of this country. Why does CNBC not want you to say that stuff? I would say that there was not, I was, there was no support for the message that I was bringing. And rather the support was for blaming uh, homeowners or blaming politicians, uh, as opposed to understanding that there was plenty of blame to go around, whether it was the borrowers, the politicians, or the bankers. The issue was not who was to blame for the problem. The issue was that the, once the problem had been revealed, rather than changing the system to prevent its perpetuation, They've simply got the banks, and under Barack Obama and a Democratic Congress, passed a financial uh, reform bill that, instead of solving the problem or putting anything in place to prevent it from happening again, rather created a direct connection between the Federal Reserve and the banks to ensure that if any time there's further distress, there's never the humiliation of having to go to the Congress to ask for money because they created a legal bypass of the people in order to guarantee direct access to the finan- to the to the Federal Reserve to keep the banks afloat. So that is a very large topic. I don't know if we've got
0: time for it tonight, but it really is a revelation. and and again, you're the one who who taught me that in a lot of ways about how now they just get the money from the Federal Reserve. I think that that's a disaster in the making. the They're basically secret bailouts that have been happening for the last decade. and And pointing that out, you know it it cost and that was the Democrats who did it. That's right. Barack
1: Obama and a Democratic Party majority did that.
0: Yeah, and and uh, and people would get mad at me when when I pointed that out. Uh, but sad day. It, reality is reality, and 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 it doesn't. Reality is not partisan, right? Um, and uh, so, uh, in fact, you talk about it. Let's talk about that for a sense. You said that uh, it made sense to you that that people in your district and and a lot of places in the country wanted to go for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Because Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush had become detached from the American people. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean that the American people, and specifically the people that I know best in New York 21, are people who simply want to have a sense that there's a level playing field of opportunity for them and their children, and that they're not dealing from two different decks, one for those who control the political process, and one for those who do not. And the reality is that the system of politics that was cultivated really going back to Bill Clinton and then through George W. Bush and then through through Barack Obama was one that was really based on raising money by vilifying the opponent in order to perpetuate their own existence while simultaneously ignoring the complete departure of everything from manufacturing to to uh, uh, lending from districts like New York 21 that leads to unemployment rates that are two times the national average. And when we got to 2016, we found ourselves in a situation where the electorate had had enough. And remember, there was so much hope for President Barack Obama after the, uh, the Bush presidency, that after eight years of Barack Obama uh, not doing things for the unemployment rate in districts like New York 21 uh, and all the rural districts that are like New York 21. And instead, uh, really working on vilifying the opponent uh, and making them seem immoral and, and wrong, people can see through it. Because the reality is they know they're not getting the job. They're not, they're not getting what they want. And even healthcare reform, which really should have been a national healthcare system, instead became a mandate to force everybody to buy into an unreformed private insurance monopoly, which is why the private insurance stocks soared on that news. And they hid behind the fact that they were adding coverage. But the reality was that was a complete cop out of a healthcare plan that really just enriched the insurance companies as a way to run on the fact that they had expanded coverage and it did nothing uh, about the fact that health health outcomes in this country are in deterioration. Anyway, that's I can give you a thousand anecdotes, but the bottom line is there it, enough was enough. And so when Bernie Sanders and D- Donald Trump came into the room, they were the two people that knew that enough was enough. And they were the two people that were speaking directly to people about the fact that enough is enough. And instead of- uh, Allowing uh, Senator Sanders uh, a a more equal playing field to uh, to offer up his candidacy from the Democratic line, it was obvious that the system inside the Democratic Party was working against him, and that's something that further alienated the population in districts like New York 21 to the point. There's uh, here's here's how I'll say this to you. There's a, if you Google the ultimatum game. The ultimatum game is a game where one person has power and the other person doesn't, okay? And what happens is the person with power gets to decide how much food both people get. So let's assume that you, Jank, have the power and, and I don't. And you can say you can give me five. If There's 10 pieces of food. You can give me five. I, you keep five. If you do that, I'm like, wow, Jank's a great guy. Now, my only option in this game is to either accept the food that you give me or decide that nobody gets any food and we both starve. Now, when it goes to six to four in the game, now, I'm, I don't think you're such a good guy, but I, I'll still take the four pieces of food. It goes to seven to three in the game. I really don't think very much of you, but I'll take the three pieces of food. But when you get to eight to two, where you're giving one portion of the population basically nothing and keeping eight pieces of whatever it is and this M&Ms or whatever we want to use, it doesn't matter what it could be money, doesn't matter what it is. The ultimatum game in behavioral economics dictates, and it's been researched thoroughly across many many an illustrious institution, that what happens to the weaker party at the eight to two mark is they say, you know what, no food for me, no food for you. And what you saw in the 2016 election was a rational behavioral economic response to a sense of being abused and abandoned by institutional politics over decades. Most of those Donald Trump votes are not necessarily votes for Donald Trump. They're votes against an institutional system that has completely detached itself from the people in general. And the only option that they had relative to the ultimate institutional candidate with Hillary Clinton was to vote for Donald Trump, which is another issue with our system, which is we have this two party system that basically only provides people with these two candidates and these two pathways, which is something that as a congressman, one of the things obviously I will lead on is political reform to work on ending gerrymandering and certainly opening up the primary process to create a broader pool of candidates across the board. I think your assessment
0: of why people voted for Donald Trump and why they can't stand the establishment is exactly right. I think the establishment. Uh, is totally uh, unaware of it. They think, well, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Status quo is great. My uh, the stock market's up. Uh, I'm in great shape. Everybody I know in New York is in great shape, right? Uh, yeah. b- but that's what's that's not what ha- that might be happening but in Manhattan. In it's not great in New York 21. No, it's not. No, and uh, and I think it, and that's what led to Brexit. That's what led to Corbyn. Uh, closing a 24-point lead. That's what led to Bernie Sanders closing a 60-point lead uh, on Hillary Clinton. So, um, And
1: And, and I'll just say this, New York 21 is America, Jake. New York 21 is America. America as a voter, America as an economy. Uh, The reason Donald Trump is the President of the United States and the reason Bernie Sanders would have been a very viable and in my opinion probably would have won the election between the two, but, but that's my personal view. But the reason that the, the outcome is what it is. And the reason the resentment is what it is, is because of the abandonment of districts like New York 21 across the board, not just in the political process, but even in the coverage. Because of the gerrymandering, uh, people don't even look at these districts. These districts are left uh, as as foregone conclusions, which is part of the reason why I decided to stick my head into this race, race specifically to highlight the issues of abandonment at New York 21 and prove that the people in districts like this, who, of which I am one of and of the people that I know, are not Republicans and Democrats. Ultimately, they're human beings who want to be given the same opportunities and security that everybody else wants. And they want to be represented in the House of Representatives, uh, by somebody who represents them, as opposed to somebody who raises money to create nasty commercials about their opponent. So uh, I gotta ask you about those
0: two policies then. Uh, in uh, in Radigan's ideal world, uh, what should Obama have done uh, with the healthcare policy
1: and, and w- when the banks had collapsed? Um, with the banks, it was easy. Uh, the capital requirements, right? The only thing that really matters is the the greatest regulator in the financial system is capital requirements. Whether it's capital requirements on the balance sheets of the banks themselves, or in the act, or in the credit insurance, that really the, where where the the flaw was. Uh, another when I say capital requirements, what I mean is when you allow a, a bank or a financial institution to lend more money than it has by forty to one, 50 to one, hundred to one. Any little blip in that creates a huge blowback and and basically a crisis. And that's the easiest regulator. It's not about having thousands of pages of rules about what you should and shouldn't do. It's about having the ultimate regulator, which is retained risk and transparency. And when the risk resides with those who take the risk, I guarantee you it will be managed. But when you create a system that allows risk to be transferred from those who create the risk to the public markets and the government, The incentive is to manufacture as much risk as humanly possible because it pays the most. And if you lose the bet, the losing bets get transferred into the public markets and to the government. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Before we go to healthcare, let me just finish up on that. Where are we
0: today with that in terms of- The same
1: place we've ever been except for now you don't have to go to Congress when there's a problem. So the risk ratio
0: is still out of whack, which still encourages wild risk taking. Uh, Warren Buffett warned about the derivatives again uh, a little while back. Uh, yeah, the leverage is as high or higher than it's ever been. So th- those weapons of financial mass destruction are still out there. It's just that- yes, when-
1: yes, yes, but they've been disarmed by the direct connection to the Federal Reserve, which basically then drives all of the risk into the US dollar. So, so it used to be the risk lived in another place, but now they basically wired the system so that any default gets wired into the US currency. And then they basically bet that the US dollar will be able to endure it, which obviously it has been, although it has been weakening over the course of the past year.
0: So it, so for people who uh, might have trouble following that, is it that when a bank takes, the, uh, uh, takes a risk, it doesn't work out, and then they're in trouble, what do they do with that in relationship to the Federal Reserve?
1: So again, any issues that the bank has uh, are resolved with the Federal Reserve. Uh, by virtue of the Federal Reserve's capacity to manage system- systematically significant financial institutions. And then the Federal Reserve manages risk to systematically significant financial institutions by printing money And the- and the Federal Reserve can print money at, at any d- denomination or volume that it wants uh, because uh, the US dollar ultimately endures it. In other words, the dollar doesn't decline in value when we make more dollars because the dollar is valued relative to the euro and the yen, uh, as opposed to on some sort of a- a fundamental or empirical basis, it's a relative valuation.
0: Yep, okay, so that disaster waits for us, unless there are good people in Congress who no, perhaps no. can uh, help us avoid it. Sure. Uh, and then on health I
1: mean, I would
0: say, listen, no, go ahead, I'm sorry, I don't, we'll, we'll leave that one for now. Okay, no, 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 you got me curious, why? <laughs>
1: is the disaster perhaps not ahead? That what, what that, no, what that disaster looks like is a collapse or decline in the US dollar, and that can play out in a couple different ways. Uh, right now, we're seeing an orderly decline in the US dollar, uh, which is certainly preferable to what happened to the British pound or the Mexican peso. And so, uh, No matter what the risk is, and no matter how guilty or how wrong somebody is, it's my hope and my effort certainly as a candidate for Congress and as a congressman from New York 21 ultimately is to ensure even though there may be culpability that whatever the liabilities are are managed in an orderly way and that there's an ability to navigate that process. We're going to a world that is ultimately prosperous and full of all sorts of abundance and solutions. It's just a matter of navigating this period of risk in a way that allows us uh, to endure as little pain as possible, which requires a level of compassion and understanding that is um, going to be uh, the, the central uh, to managing the amount of pain that we're exposed to. Okay, and and healthcare. What would you have done on healthcare? First of all, healthcare is. How do I say this? Right, I'm going to say I'm going to start here. Okay, there's two issues with healthcare. One is the secure, security and access. To the current system, that's number one, and number two is, does what we're paying for create health? We know that what we're paying for, whether it's a public healthcare system or a private healthcare system, is not creating health. Our health outcomes, health outcomes in places like New York 21, which is America, health outcomes are in decline. We pay more and we have less healthy human beings. So my first issue with the healthcare debate is we're talking about who's going to pay for a system that's really expensive and gives us lousy outcomes. But I can't really afford to indulge in that conversation when the fundamental sense of security and access is at stake people cannot talk about optimizing a system when they feel that their very well-being in their life is at risk based on simply accessing the system. So what should they have done? Exactly the same thing that they should have done with the bailout. You do the bailout and then you install capital requirements and you reform the system. What you what should you do with the healthcare system? You transfer it to a national to a public healthcare system, which is the rational economic system to fund any healthcare system in the world, but you own, you do it with strings attached that force a shift in the way the money is spent away from sick care and into all the abundant preventative measures that are available uh, and, and widely available as solutions in our society. And there and and again to shift the expense from the private or the public sector or provide any benefit or policy to that system, to that healthcare system without assigning the strings that drive towards better health outcomes is just as reckless as bailing out the banks with no strings attached. All right,
0: and then I wanted to ask you one more important question. Before you get to Stefanik, you've got a significant Democratic primary on your hands with a lot of people in the field and good people in the field. Very. Yeah, so
1: why should people vote for you in the Democratic primary? Uh, really very simple um, I, the fact of the matter is that the unemployment rate is twice the national average the fact of the matter is that the opioid epidemic is on the rise here guns the 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 services to this seat are the, the district is not getting what it needs and it and what you have to do in order to win this district is appeal to independents and Republicans and bring the resources into the district that can actually solve the problem. And so while there are, a, there's no shortage of great ideas, and, and, there's no, and I don't have any particular belief that my ideas are that much more superior to anybody else's on policy. The thing that distinguishes me from everybody else running in the Democratic primary is that there's no one else running in the Democratic primary who has my own. Understanding of the district and the district roots that go back to the 1700s that can be then married with a level of understanding of finance and economics, money and power to actually run a formidable enough campaign on the fundraising and communication side to defeat Stefanik, as well as to serve the district in the way that it deserves to be served. Okay, I lied, I have one more question. (laughs) Money in politics. I know, you never can trust the media. All right, I know, right? (laughs) Uh, You can't trust them.
0: That's right, that's why you left. Um, So uh, what's your position on Money in Politics?
1: Um, So here's the thing, Money in Politics, I started Get Money, getmoneyout.com, the domain is one that I purchased. Right, the the, the 300,000, 400,000 person list that's used by represent.us is one that I gave them. Uh, My objection to the role of money in politics as the the root of all political evil is unchanged. At the end of the day, however, and it goes to the same thing. I keep saying at the end of the day, maybe it's the middle of the day. Um, (laughs) you know, what's with the end of the day? Uh, Whether it's public finance of elections or private finance of elections, it's small groups of people controlling money in elections that is the issue. And I believe the most interesting ideas on money and politics that I've learned over the course of the past five years have come from people like Larry Lessig that acknowledges that it requires money to finance political there are there are jobs. people manage campaigns. people there's all these things that people have to do. They need to eat. they need to they need to be able to go home. all these things they need to have a home um, comes from a voucher system, let's call it two hundred dollars that everybody in America gets so that no one in America can put more than two hundred dollars into an election, and that that two hundred dollars is something that you basically have to donate. I mean, if it was up to me. I would basically make it a mandatory participation on the funding side so that you're actually having a conversation about who you're giving your money to. Uh, that was a long winded way of my saying money is at the root of evil and the, the money is not at the root of evil. Large amounts of money controlled by small groups of people is the biggest issue for the political system. And the answer is to distribute the base of that financing in a way that diminishes the power of any one donor.
0: Uh, I. I hardly doubt there'll be a a smarter congressman uh, in Washington if Dylan Radigan wins this race. So uh, Dylan, uh, great to talk to you uh, and great to see you uh, moving on to the next interesting wild chapter of your life. Uh, hope to check in with you and see how the race is going. And everybody check out dylanradigan.com, and we'll have all the links, whether you wanna volunteer or, or donate, et cetera, to Dylan, down below in the description box on YouTube and comment section on Facebook. Thank you, Dylan.
1: Always a pleasure, Jake. Thank you.